while the left can't abandon those socially liberal causes, it needs to find a way to talk about them in a way that's more unifying than dividing. Otherwise, you know, you end up allowing populists to kind of come in and use that social wedge to divide what could otherwise be a fairly unified coalition. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. There's been a lot of talk about Democrats' inevitable demographic majority. The idea is simple. Young Americans are more liberal than older Americans. Minority voters are more liberal than white voters. So as young voters replace older voters, and as Americans become majority-minority, Democrats will enjoy a huge advantage. Well, I don't buy it. I don't buy the argument about young liberals. Why? Because young people tend to get more conservative as they get older. And because they aren't all that left-wing to start off with. 30% of young Americans now consider themselves liberal. But 28% call themselves conservative. And 40% moderate. I also don't buy the argument about the demographic shift. Why? Because lots of Latinos did actually vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Because it's really difficult to predict how Latinos and Asian Americans and African Americans will vote 30 years from now. And because it will take much longer than most people realize for America to become majority-minority. Many children and grandchildren of Latinos and Asian Americans actually consider themselves white. So Americans who think of themselves as white will probably remain in the majority until 2060, or perhaps even 2080. What does all of this mean? Well, for me, there's at least two takeaways here. First, to win elections, Democrats will still need to earn the vote of a lot of white voters and a lot of moderate voters. Just doubling down on the base is a losing strategy. But second, the way to appeal to those moderate moderates isn't to split the difference. While demography may not be destiny, Triangulation isn't the answer either. To win elections, Democrats will have to convince voters that they have bold solutions to real problems, rather than banking on the idea that they already have all the answers, or that the future will favor them in any case, they have to persuade and to inspire. I'm thrilled that Shari Berman, professor of political science at Barnard College, will be my guest on the show today. In the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a triumphalist narrative in a lot of political science. Civil society, the story went, had brought down communism in Eastern Europe, so if only we supported NGOs, political dissidents, and bowling leagues in far-flung places, democracy might thrive around the world. But in an important article, Shari showed that civil society could have a dark side, Yes, it was used by Czech intellectuals to bring down communism, but some five decades before, it had also been used by Nazis to bring down the Weimar Republic. I read that article many years ago and have been hooked on Shari's work, uh, including her latest book, The Primacy of Politics, Social Democracy and the Making of Europe's 20th Century, ever since. And over the last months, as the world has taken a turn for the dark, we've spent a good bit of time discussing not just the crisis of social democracy, but also the rise of populism and, of course, Donald Trump. Uh, welcome to the show, Shari. Glad to be here. You thought a lot about how civil society can be used to strengthen, but also to weaken democracy. What follows from that uh, in the current moment? What can we as members of civil society do to resist Trump? Or is that 
the wrong frame for thinking about this political moment? So that's a great question. Um, Civil society is often thought of and historically has been kind of a counterpoint to the state and political institutions more generally. And it's seen as a kind of way of balancing the state, government, political elites, the power they have, the amount of interference they can accomplish in um, society itself. And so when you have a political regime or a government that you are opposed to, then organizing through civil society is one way to kind of check that government or that regime, in addition to trying to influence it through elections and political institutions. So in a democracy, you have both options, that is to say, organizing yourself in society and also trying to influence political outcomes through the political process itself. So, you know, I've been struggling to make sense of how it actually works in the last months, right? So it seems really significant that not that many people turned out to the inauguration and lots and lots of people turned out to the Women's March. It seems significant that when the executive order about immigration was passed, you know, groups of protesters flocked to airports around the country. But what is the power actually? How does this work? What's the mechanism, you would say, in social science, right? Like, why is it that these protests stop the administration from doing what it wants? And if the administration is sort of determined enough, can't we just ignore it? Well, that's also a great question. The protests themselves can't do much alone. It depends on what they build to. So protests have a variety of functions. One is they signal to the people who are not at the protest, okay, there's a lot of actual support out there for this particular policy or for this particular alternative. And once people kind of see that there are others who have this position, it may tip them into support or activism themselves. Protests also signal to like-minded people, hey, there are a lot of folks out there like you. And so you should be even more engaged because you're not alone in this. And then third, of course, protests are a signal to governments or elites in power, giving them some sense of how many folks out there are actually willing to take off a Saturday afternoon and protest. The question then becomes, right, do the protests activate other people, people on the fence, people who might be committed but not really participating, and also then build to more long-term, well-organized forms of opposition? So protests really should be seen as the beginning of a chain of opposition or one link in that chain rather than something in and of itself that's going to make a huge difference. I think that's a really important point, right? But I mean, slacktivism is often criticized for like, you know, just liking things on Facebook doesn't do anything. But in a weird way, that's true of protest as well, that protest actually is only the first in a, in a long chain, even if it's physical protest, in a long chain of things you have to do to make things work. I mean, I've been wondering how much of this is sort of irrational and psychological, right? I mean, when you have, you know, Republicans or Democrats having to go back to the home district and hold town halls, and you just have this crowd of 2,000 people shouting at you, right? I mean, even politicians who are used to a lot of unpleasant things, you don't, you don't want to be shouted at by 2,000 people. You don't want to have to hide in your home district. And perhaps actually the rational strategy, if, if you really think that like rational choice explains everything about the world, which I think you and I don't, would be to just keep stick with a policy. But you're like, you know what? Like, I, I don't want to go home and be shouted at. I, I wonder, you know, how much of this actually, like one of the things that makes protests work is sort of irrational. And if politicians completely stuck by the principles and didn't have those desires to be popular um, or to appear popular, they might stick with a course of action and ignore the protest and suddenly the protest would lose its efficacy. 
So, I mean, I think you're right in that protest or any kind of collective behavior has a psychological aspect, right? I mean, as you said, politicians don't want to go back and be yelled at. And also there's a psychological aspect for the people protesting themselves. You know, you Mm. go and you meet with like-minded people and you kind of share this experience and there's a social aspect to it as well. But again, the point is, and if we think about the sort of Tea Party analogy, it's not merely the protest, that is to say, showing that you are opposed to what's going on. It's that these protests, in the case of the Tea Party, then snowballed or built into an organized effort to actually rebuild the Republican Party from the ground up. So it wasn't just that you went to existing councilmen or congressmen and said, look, you know, we don't like what you're doing. It's that you then took this protest and turned it into a movement to potentially replace them. The other thing, obviously, that protests do or showing up at town hall meetings does is it presents the politician with the most mobilized, most concerned citizens. So they understand that these are the people not only most likely to vote, but who very well may then be the people organizing against them come next election. So there's a lot of potential things going on there um, in addition to the important psychological aspect of it. Yeah, I think perhaps uh, I, I buy the psychological element. It's not as, exp- not as important as, as I thought for a moment it was. How do Democrats think about building on this energy? Because there's two things going on. On the one side, as you're saying, Protests can bring people together. They can activate people of strong political views, but have never been politically active. And and that can start to rebuild local democratic parties, which is really important. It can create the networks of people who can, you know, oppose uh, a pro-Trump candidate at the next uh, uh, school board election, at the next uh, city council race, at the next state representative race, and sort of build up in those kinds of ways. But often the people who protest are also most ideologically hardline. And this is a general phenomenon in American politics. The people who participate in primaries, more liberal on the Democratic side or more conservative on the Republican side than the average voter. So how do Democrats build on this energy without being in danger of the party being taken over in a certain kind of way? So that's a really important dilemma, and it goes beyond American politics, right? The people who are most active, and particularly those who are the first movers, the ones who are kind of out there before it becomes a mass movement, almost by definition are going to be more ideological or more extreme. Why? Because they're the type of people who are motivated to do stuff when other people aren't, or when it seems like a kind of, you know, potentially lost cause. So you always have this dynamic. You see it now a little bit in the United States, but it's true in other democracies. And it's also very true in authoritarian regimes, right? Mm. The people who protest in authoritarian regimes when there's not a lot of space for either civil society or political participation are almost by definition going to be those, again, most extreme or most ideologically committed. And so then the question becomes, right, how do you take that sort of special person who becomes an activist and turn that into an organizational movement that can appeal more broadly and can work more successfully across, you know, a myriad of type of citizens. And so that is a real issue. It's easier in a place like the United States where, as we talked about already, there are a large number of civil society organizations and Mm. political organizations. And so presumably as you build a movement, the key is to arrange networks among these different things. And there's a kind of natural, I think, potential there for moderation or balancing if that's what, you know, the people involved are trying to do. So that's part of the question, right? I mean, are the people involved trying to do that? And how can we make sure that they think of themselves as building that? You know, when you think of something like Indivisible, which is quite self-consciously trying to build on the Tea Party model, it seems to me that there's obvious reasons why we take inspiration from the Tea Party. 
in light of the 2016 elections, it's easy to cast the Tea Party as a story of success, which led to the nomination in certain ways of Donald Trump. For the lineage is not straightforward there. And the Republicans recapturing not just the White House, but state houses and governor's mansions all over the country. But obviously what you get is also a very radical, extreme figure. And so I don't know on the left how we can harness a lot of the energy that's out there at the moment, do the work of opposition that is necessary and often quite uncompromising opposition, but without just emulating that and and, and ending up with a bunch of candidates who have to pass rigid ideological litmus tests that even if they prove to be electorally successful, which I'm not sure about because I think it's easier for the right to win on simplistic solutions than the left. That's historically always been the case. But even as it luxuriously successful, we wind up with an incredibly polarized political system that seems really unhealthy and dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that is really the question, because since, as you said, the first movers and the activists tend to be somewhat more extreme and ideological, and the primary system itself favors, in a presidential level in any case, favors, you know, electing or putting in positions to be elected those candidates who do appeal to the base, to the more committed, to the more ideological, simply because those are the people who show up to run, right? But when you actually get to the election, you want a candidate who has a broader appeal. So this is a real dilemma. I mean, presumably the key for the Democrats, therefore, is is figuring out how to uh, how to harness this discontent, right, how to attract these activists, but with a program that's obviously more broadly based. Now, that's a sort of trite way of saying or restating what you said, right? But what the Democrats have to do is come up with some kind of appeal that can capture the dissatisfaction among the various groups that have to make up its electoral support base. But, you know, do so in a way that doesn't shut off appealing to groups that have drifted away from the party. I mean, and this is the real challenge, right, which is Trump has opened up a space for the Democrats to reimagine themselves. And if they don't come up with something positive, then, yeah, what's going to happen is those people who are most extreme and ideological are going to be the ones who make the most noise and who have the most impact. But that may not ultimately benefit the Democratic Party when they have to win larger elections or build broader coalitions. So what might that program look like, right? So so if the idea is you want to harness this energy, but you still want to appeal to people in a political center, right? I mean, a majority of Americans consider themselves moderate, not liberal. A majority of young people consider themselves moderate, not liberal. How do you develop a program that makes it feel like Democrats have something to say, but gives the lie to the charge that I think was quite effectively labeled against Hillary Clinton, whether fair or not, that she was running in order for her to be president, not in order to do something with a presidency? How do you avoid that charge while appealing to people in the center of politics? So that's a that's the key question for Democrats, right, which is it's easy to be negative. It's harder to be positive. And in a country where there's a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of fear and a lot of concern, that negative appeal can be quite powerful, which is precisely what we saw, I think, in the last election. So as you said, the Democrats have to figure out some way to respond to that dissatisfaction in a positive way, right? Clearly, there's a very strong economic component to that. We saw that in the Sanders campaign and in his success, right? And so the Democrats have to find some 
more coherent and cohesive way of criticizing economic trends without alienating those middle class and highly educated voters who will be somewhat critical of two radical economic proposals. But there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of support for infrastructure. There's a lot of support for universal, some kind of universal health care, albeit one that fixes some of the problems of the current, quote unquote, Obamacare system. There's a lot of support for increased attention paid to build rebuilding our communities, whether that means thinking about how to improve our school systems or dealing with drug problems. But these things have to be done, I think, under a more coherent rubric. I think Clinton had most of these policies there, but they seem to be really quite piecemeal and embedded mm. in a negative critique rather than a positive vision of where the United States was going. And then there's the question of social issues, right? Those were very powerful both in Trump's negative campaign and in Clinton's profile. And here's a real dilemma for the Democrats, right? Because they do have to assemble a very diverse coalition. They have to do that while satisfying this different coalition's particular grievances and demands without alienating other groups. And so clearly some kind of way to appeal to the desire of all Americans for a fairer, more just system that seems to kind of benefit everyone while recognizing historical grievances, but not seeming to favor some groups over another. This is a circle, <laughs> you know, this is a circle that the Democrats have to figure out how to square. I think it can be yeah. done, but it will require some some pretty difficult adjustments on the part of both the party and the constituencies that make it up. I feel like you keep adding more and more conditions with every sentence. So like, and they have to do this, and they have to do that, and they have to do that. And I think every condition you're mentioning sounds perfectly convincing to me. But it's difficult to think about how to do all of those things at the same time. In, in the next episode of this podcast, I'll have Lee Drutman on, who's a fellow here at New America as well. And, and his argument is that, you know, the main dividing line of politics used to be economic, and it's now about identity. And in a way for, for Democrats to win and for the political system to not become too conflictual. We need to get back to the economic dividing line. That's difficult to do. I mean, I think it's worth thinking about the fact that actually a majority of Barack Obama's voters were white. It's easy to forget that. I think Democrats start are starting to think of themselves in a way as this coalition of minorities. And that's certainly part of why Obama won, because he you know, had huge majorities of, of a vote among those groups. But most of his voters were still white, and that's not going to change that fast in the coming years. So it's a question of how do you speak an economic language that appeals to broad swaths of Americans, that appeals actually to a very broad socioeconomic division of, of Americans, because Democrats do best among the very poor, but also among the very affluent in urban areas. So how do you combine those two things? How do you defend people who are part of your coalition who are African-American, Latino, and Asian-American, and Muslim against the attacks from Donald Trump, but without doubling down on identity politics in such a way that, you know, a lot of white moderate voters go towards Republicans. And doing all of those things at the same time is an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, one thing it seems to me is that you have to raise the salience of economic issues, that Hillary Clinton was pretty far left on economic issues. Actually, when you look at it, but she didn't have one big narrative piece about this, right? Like Donald Trump was tough on identity and he had a policy to prove it. It was a policy that was symbolic, that wouldn't do very much, that's nasty and wasteful in many ways. But does he mean it about identity? Yes, he does. He wants to build a wall. 
And Hillary Clinton didn't have the one policy that made people believe her that she really does care for ordinary people. She talked about that, and when you look into the details, she had a policy on every little issue, but she didn't have the one thing where it was like, oh, you know what, I bibed Hillary Clinton is on my side because, you know, she will give us all money in this way. What might that policy be? Is there a policy like that? Or is the way that the economic challenge now looks such that that policy just doesn't exist? Well, I don't know if there's a particular policy. I mean, Trump's wall is symbolic. I don't I don't think that even the survey data indicates that most people actually who voted for him think he's going to build that wall. It was more, as you said, a kind of very simple and straightforward symbol of the way he thought about, you know, problems of identity or problems of immigration in this country. I think the problem for Clinton was especially in comparison to Obama, that, you know, she was a good candidate at the wrong time, right? A a lot of Obama's appeal was that he was a candidate of change. Mm -hmm. And she simply could not present herself as that, just like her counterpart in the Republican Party, Jeb Bush, who would have been, and people thought was the kind of logical candidate, he would have been at a different time, right, when her husband was elected. So, I mean, I think part of the issue for her was that she couldn't represent that desire for even economic change simply because because of her background, which again, at another time would have been seen as a major advantage. But, you know, Sanders had a sort of simple, straightforward story. He had some particular policies that resonated, free college, universal health care, you know, but I don't think that those were the things that attracted people. It was that he was forthright in his criticism of the reigning order. He was clear in his desire to represent a change in that order. And the specifics were less important. Where I am at with thinking about this is that you need two things. You need a very clear narrative, which Bernie Sanders had and Hillary Clinton didn't. And I think in some ways Bernie Sanders' narrative was overly simple, but it was clear and, and, and that made it very appealing. And I think you need a symbolic policy for people to buy that you mean what you're saying. And that policy doesn't have to actually do stuff. I mean, the free college policy was deeply problematic in all kinds of ways. It probably would have redistributed money from poorer to richer Americans. It certainly wouldn't have addressed the most glaring economic injustices in this country. But that didn't matter because it was a visible thing. People were like, oh, you know what? Like every month I have to put away a hundred bucks so that my, my kids can go to college. You know what? Like if Bernie Sanders comes in, I don't have to do that. Right. Or people saying I have a lot of student debt. If Bernie Sanders had, you know, been able to put in place this policy before I went to college, I wouldn't have all of his debt. Right. It's an easy thing. I agree that it's not a deep solution, but people bought it. And so what you need is, in the first level of analysis, the rhetoric, the vision, and one very visible policy. Of course, the problem is that if you then get into power and you can't improve things for people because the policy you're talking about either doesn't doesn't get passed by Congress in the first place, or even if it does, doesn't actually improve people's lives, then you're going to have a huge problem four or eight years from now because there's going to be even more anger and that's probably going to go to far-right populists. So there's an additional problem. But in the first instance, I do think you need the narrative and you need the policy. And so it's worth thinking about what might that policy be and is there a policy that does more good than, in my mind, free college would have done? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that that makes sense, right? Because people's attention span is short. Most folks don't have a lot of time to pay attention to the details of politics. So something that they can remember, something that they can relate to their specific concerns and problems, that is true. It is definitely helpful. But the dilemma is precisely the one you've identified, right? Which is, you know, if you're going for that, the tendency is to want to go big. But if you 
put forward something as the centerpiece of your political profile that is very unlikely to actually be implemented, then you face the problem of a huge backlash later on, frustration and dissatisfaction increasing, and that only benefiting your opponents, which at this particular time is a real danger, right? So yes, I mean, that makes perfect sense, but this is something that has to be thought very carefully about. The instinct might be to go for the splash because that's the thing that's going to make the most impact, but it has to be something that in some version you can actually imagine getting done. One splashy policy that has gained a lot of traction in the last 10, 15 years, uh, more in Western Europe than here, but it's a big part of a discussion in the United States as well, is universal basic income. And I wish that uh, listeners of the podcast could see the face you just made, but we'll get to that. So on the face of it, there's some good arguments for universal basic income, right? I mean, economists fear that 50% of jobs might go away over the next 20 years. The most common profession in 38 out of 50 U.S. states is trucking, and it's pretty clear at this point that truck drivers are going to be out of a job because of automation very soon. So why not give a universal basic income that ensures that everybody, whether they work or not, you know, has enough money to pay bills, can lead a minimally decent life? So the face you made was one of displeasure, and I know that you're a critic of universal basic income, so that's why I brought this up. So verbalize your face for us, Sherry. So... Look, this is a solution that has gone from the fringes to, if not the mainstream, then closer to the mainstream than I would have thought in the last 10 years. And I think it is a result of precisely what you said, which is economic trends that are leading a lot of people to think that jobs are going to disappear, combined with a kind of desperation, right, which is, oh, my goodness, we don't have anything else. This is pretty simple and straightforward. It oddly is one of those things that has some appeal on both the left and the right. It sort of builds on things like negative income tax. It's interesting to pause for a moment to to explain why it has appealed on the left and the right. The left, it has appealed to because they're like, part of a problem of a capitalist system is that you're essentially enslaved to the market, that you have to work in order to make a living on pain of starving. And so you you, you wind up having to do really low-level work for bad pay, for big corporations. And what universal basic income would do would be to free you from that enslaving logic of the market, right? That's the sort of most Marxist version of of that argument. But on the right, people are saying, look, at the moment you have this huge state bureaucracy and there's a lot of inefficiency in trying to assess whether you are eligible for this kind of medical benefit or you're eligible for that kind of food stamp. Let's get rid of all of this. We can't have people staff, but we'll just put money in the bank account once a month and get rid of a lot of the state. And so that's why libertarians, somewhat paradoxically, are really attractive universal basic income as well. Sorry for the intermission. No, 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 that's great. And I think it's important to kind of note that they come to a similar solution from very different backgrounds, from very different intellectual justifications. I mean, this is a discussion that could take more than one podcast, of course. I mean, there's both practical and intellectual things to consider. And I'll just gesture towards a couple of them since there's a lot of them. The practical is that the money's just not there. I mean, even for the most minimal level of basic income, right, something that would cover anywhere even near the poverty line, we're talking about much more spending than we currently have to play with in the American or even European budget. So there's a practical question here. But even if we were to push that aside on the theory that the economy is moving in such a way that, you know, people really are not going to have jobs, which is not something I actually believe, there's also social issues, which, again, you gesture towards in your justification, right, which is the right likes it or the libertarian right likes it for getting rid of the state. 
But think about the kind of social cleavage that will then be in our society, right? You then have a huge mass of people, right, living off subsidies from other people, And it would be the more educated, the people who can earn much more than the basic income, who are actually engaged in, you know, sort of socially fulfilling, economically rewarding work. I mean, if we have a society now that is plagued by immense societal divisions, imagine what a society where 30 or 40 percent of the people are actually getting their income from work is like, and then the rest of the people are getting much of their income from just some kind of handout. And think about perpetuating problems of social mobility in that kind of situation. And there's sort of an empirical problem there and a normative problem. The empirical problem is that, you know, actually what drives a lot of the populist anger at the moment is not necessarily the very poorest in society, but it's people in the middle class and lower middle class, the petty bourgeoisie, who feel like they've gotten a rotten deal. That, you know, for most of American history, the living standards of ordinary people kept rising. It did for the parents, it did for the grandparents, and they expected it to rise over the course of their lifetime, and it didn't. And that stagnation of living standards, I think, is really what drives the anger. Now, their living standards wouldn't improve because of universal basic income. If anything, it might uh, be slightly reduced, right? Because the money wouldn't come from the very richest, it would to some degree. But if you're going to pay everybody, you know, 1500 bucks a month, um, it has to come from middle class to some degree. So actually, universal basic income is the right thing to do if you're worried about mass immiseration. And if it does turn out that 20 years from now, 50% of jobs are gone, then perhaps that's the only thing we can do. But it wouldn't solve the actual empirical drivers of the anger at the moment. Now, after all, at the moment, we do have pretty close to full employment. We don't have lots of people lying around in the streets starving. What we do have is people being really pissed off. Their paycheck hasn't increased in a long time. And then I think there's, an, there's a normative problem, which, which actually speaks a little bit to a book, which was originally my dissertation, which is coming out in, in the next months. And I never plug this, but I will now. The age of responsibility, lack choice in the welfare state. And one of the arguments I make there about the left is that they're too tempted to treat poor people as sort of victims of structure who unfortunately, you know, the right story about personal responsibility is if something's your fault, then we owe you less. And the left has started to take a lot of that premise on board. Say, you know what, that's true. If the only reason why you're poor is that you're lazy, then we really do owe you less. But we still want to do stuff for people in our society. So what we're going to say is, you know what? It's untrue that those people are in need because of their own fault. It's always structure. It's always things outside of themselves. And that's true to some degree. But it leads to an attitude where you're saying, well, let's just give them handouts and feel sorry for them and give them, you know, some a little bit of money. And then they, you know, they won't have a job. They won't have a lot of agency in their lives. But they have a decent material standard of living and we can feel good about ourselves. And in a way, universal basic income is, I'm just thinking through this as we're talking, I think it's a giant version of that. It's not trying to think, how do we get good jobs for them? How do we give them mobility? How do we make them dream about actually rising into the middle class and expanding the ranks of the middle class? Instead, it's saying, well, look, let's buy these people off so they don't revolt by giving them enough money to, you know, smoke and play Xbox. And I also think what's really important is that You know, the welfare state should not be seen purely, again, as we've been talking about, in a negative way, right? That is to say, okay, we're going to have a variety of programs that help society's quote-unquote losers, right? The best version of the welfare state, right, is one where the government helps people, 
right? So that they are better able to help themselves. There's a right. new book out by Tyler Cohen, who's the name of which I can't remember, where he argues that the problem in our economy is that people have become less willing to move for jobs, less willing to be entrepreneurial. And he bames that primarily on a kind of cultural shift. But that, I think, is very wrong, right? The reason why people don't move from jobs or from one community to another is because doing so would be incredibly economically difficult. Yeah. We should have policies in place that help retrain people, that give them incentives to move to the places where jobs are, that help them to rebuild themselves and to rebuild their communities in a changing economy, right? So the welfare state should help people adjust. It should provide positive liberty, so to speak. Um, it should not simply be what's there for those who are sort of falling on the margins of society and economy. I, I think that's a crucial point. In a weird way, I think the left and the right dovetail on this, where the right is saying, you know, my basic hunch about people is that they don't want to work. They just want to be lazy, but they want the handout. And so we got to put the carrot in the stick. You know, perhaps, yes, if you work, we'll give you a negative income tax, so we support you a little bit. But mostly we give you a stick that, that if we decide that you're not striving hard enough to work, we, we get you off food stamps, you're going to starve because you need that stick. You need that incentive in order to do anything. And the left in a way is saying, well, look, unfortunately, the structure is so complicated and so on that we should give people handouts and we can't really have them aspire to much more than that because it's just not possible. The victims of the structure. And I my hunch is different. My hunch is that most people want to have a perspective. They want to work hard. They want to rise in social class, but they often lack the material and educational preconditions for being able to do that. And so the right question is, how do we do that? Um, you know, it, it, it's funny the sort of cultural stories people tell in order to uh, make sense of economic shifts. Um, there's a famous story uh, about Italy where, oh, ha, 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 isn't it funny that all these children, and especially the sons in Italy, they love their moms so much that they never move out, right? The mamone, uh, who, you know, at the age of 30 is still living with his mom. And I know lots of people in Italy whom that's true, but it is because they don't have steady jobs and they don't have the money to move out. In the 1980s, when the Italian economy was doing much better, the number of Italian, young Italians living at home was much, much, much lower. It was at the level of other European countries. And now it's gone up rapidly, not because they love the mom so much, because they can't afford to live out. So I actually want to shift to Europe for a moment um, uh, and think about the history of social democracy. You thought a lot about, you know, in simplest terms, what has made social democracy work and what has made social democracy a phenomenally successful movement over the last, or over the late 19th and especially the 20th century, but also the reasons why it has lost its hold on the European population in important ways. And we'll come back to the U.S. I think this has implications for the U.S., but take us through that story quickly. So, I mean, it gets us back to a lot of the things that we've already talked about, right? So what the sort of center of social democratic left had to offer during the post-war period, right, was basically kind of answers to or solutions to the two problems that we've been dancing around, right, which is how do you have a capitalist economy that's both dynamic but also doesn't destroy communities, create too much individual risk and dislocation? So you need to have a capitalism that's dynamic but that's also controlled, right? It's controlled by political forces, by social imperatives, yada, yada, yada. The second question is about how to maintain what you might think of as kind of national solid 
solidarity or fraternity in a world that's kind of constantly changing demographically, ideologically, you know, socially, right? And what social democracy said is, look, you know, we're kind of all in this together. The state's going to provide for citizens who fall by the wayside and help you adjust. And we're all going to kind of protect each other and support each other as we kind of move forward to build a better society. I mean, that's really the two kind of key issues or problems that remain kind of fundamental to the dynamics of a modern capitalist economy. And the best solutions to those dilemmas or problems were really offered, I think, by the social democratic or center left during the post-war period. But it kind of lost the ability to answer those questions in the sort of last quarter of the 20th century. And that opened up a space for other movements to kind of step in and try to kind of respond to some of these things. And now we see some of the most powerful or appealing responses coming from, you know, the populist right in Europe and the United States, again, kind of trying to deal with both of these, you know, whatever dilemmas or problems. So there's two stories we might tell about this, right? So one is that what social democrats promised was institutional conservatism to some degree with a really radical economic promise that, you know, in the late 19th century, they said, look, unlike the communists, we like parliamentary institutions. We don't want revolution by force. But look, at the moment you work 14 hours a day and if you vote for us, you'll vote nine or 10 hours a day. At the moment you work until you drop dead, um, if you vote for us, um, you'll get old age pensions, right? Um, and and as the welfare state became more fully realized, it became more difficult for social democrats to have that kind of radical vision because people already were working 35-hour weeks. They already had health insurance. They already had old age pensions. So how what can you offer them that's on the level of what you could offer them in the early 20th century as as progress? And then as a result, that made it more difficult to keep together, and this is where the American relevance comes out, I think, the core constituencies that social democrats always needed to win, which is the working class, but also urban, educated, middle-class people, especially in more educational, cultural, etc. professions. And these two, these two groups are now falling apart, and in most European countries, the social democrats have stuck with the middle-class voters, so that the first party of a proletariat in many European countries now is the far-right populace. It's true in Austria, it's true in France, it's true in a bunch of countries. So what to do about that? And and how, how to hold together this coalition, which is obviously the coalition the Democrats used to have in the United States and that we've lost in the 2016 election. I mean, the European and American situations are different in important ways, but they're similar in really important ways as well. And what the the trend that you've pointed out is a crucial one for the left, right, which is that these two natural constituencies of the center democratic or social democratic left, you know, sort of working class voters and sort of urban educated, the liberal intelligentsia, right, those have kind of split. And as you said, oddly enough, and this is true in the United States as well, the left has stuck more with, appealed more to the latter group rather than the former, that is to say the working class, which has historically been the stuff of the left, right? The mainstay of the left, right? I mean, part of that, again, it gets us back to these same questions, right? Which is economic issues are important, right? Because here's a place where, you know, the, the sort of the upper middle class or liberal or educated voters that the left tends to appeal to are more willing to support these kinds of more redistributionist policies than you might expect based on their income. So shifting debate back there can be helpful, but it has to be, again, along with something that promises 
more growth and also deals with some of these other social issues because that's another place where the real cleavage is, right? Because those more educated urban voters tend to be much more socially liberal than the working class voters are. So while the left can't abandon those socially liberal causes, it needs to find a way to talk about them in a way that's more unifying than dividing. Otherwise, you know, you end up allowing populists to kind of come in and use that social wedge to divide what could otherwise be a fairly unified coalition on economic grounds. Shari, in 30 seconds, a couple of months into the Trump presidency, how worried are you and what should we be doing? Easy question for a 30 second answer. I I'm know. fairly worried and I think we should all be endeavoring to kind of help the Democrats come up with both better policies and better organizational capabilities at the local and state level to rebuild this coalition from the ground up. That was great. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Uh, lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, buy a loudspeaker and shout about it in the market square. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.